Hi again, everyone. Welcome into another episode of the Vigilant Sports Pacers podcast. I'm Scott Agnes. Hey, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and on Stitcher if you haven't already. And how about writing a review? That would be greatly appreciated. Today on the podcast, I'm talking with Bill York, who's worked in nearly every media room in downtown Indianapolis. He started with the Indianapolis Motor Speedway in the mid-1950s, and he's been with the Colts and the Pacers, as well as the Fever, ever since those teams were here in Indianapolis. At the final home game for the Colts this past year, York was presented with a blue Colts jersey with his name on the back and the number 32, representing the number of years that he ran the stat room at Colts home games. Inside of Banker's Life Fieldhouse, the media room is named after Bill York. He's just one of the few individuals that has been there with the Pacers from the beginning. Well, at a West Side breakfast spot in Indianapolis, here's my conversation with longtime director of Indie Sports Stats Crew, Bill York. And so I'm pleased to be sitting down with Bill York, the lead statistician for the Indiana Pacers, even have the media room named after you. Bill, how you doing? Pretty good this morning, Scott. First, before we get into the Pacers, take us through your history, uh, where you grew up, what kind of sports were you interested in, and how you became so interested in statistics and, and media. I graduated from Bunker Hill High School up near Peru, Indiana in 1951. I participated and played varsity basketball for three and a half years at Bunker and was on one sectional championship. And I also played, we had a pretty good softball team. Upon completion of uh, high school, I attended Purdue University where I I love giving you a hard time about that all the time. Right? I uh, I went out for <laughs> basketball, but I only lasted the first week, the first day. Uh, I wasn't near good enough to play on a college basketball team coming out of a small school like Bunker. And but after that, uh, at Purdue, uh, it was ag engineering and. Uh, then uh, after two years there, I was in the service for two and a half years and spent two and a half years in Camp Chaffee, Arkansas in the U.S. Army. And upon completion of that, came back and completed my degree at Purdue University. And uh, I was going to, I had a job all lined up to go to work at a company called Stark & Wetzel Meatpacking Company in uh, Indianapolis. Okay where I wanted to be a hog buyer. <clears throat> well, that didn't work out. I ended up uh, uh, getting at uh, Stark and Wetzel in, in Mar- February of uh, 1957. Well, Stark and Wetzel, we sponsored the Rookie of the Year program at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. So that is my initial uh, involvement with Sports in Indianapolis in 1957. I would take a rookie driver and a or a race driver and a film and a projector and out go out and Stark and Wetzel promoted the 500 mile race and our Rookie of the Year program. And I would have anywhere from probably 15, 20 to 25 or 30 uh, luncheons or dinners with a race driver all over the state where Stark and Wetzel products were sold. Well, upon completion of the uh, Stark and Wetzel, I was there for seven years, and they uh, 
discontinued our department where I had been doing the, the company publication and uh, other PR work, but uh, I was out of a job. Well, while I was unemployed, uh, May come along, and the head of director of public relations at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway asked me if I would like to take the month of May and work in the media center at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. So I did, and that took the whole uh, month of May off, and they paid me handsomely, and uh, I still helped Stark and Wetzel with the Rookie of the Year program, which... Uh, still today. I still do that. Oh, that's cool. Today, that's uh, cool. For, but we've had three or four different sponsors since then, including a couple of the big banks here in town, and uh, so uh, right now they... Uh, I, I forget right now who it is sponsored by, but there's another company that is now presently sponsoring the the Rookie of the Year program, which was started by ourselves back in the, in the 50s, uh, where Art Cross was the first first winner. And, of course, subsequent winners like Parnelli, Jones, Bobby Marshman, George Herman, Danica Patrick, many of the uh, of the up-to-date uh, rookie of the years are it's it's still the second most coveted award behind the board warner trophy at indianapolis motor speedway yeah uh upon uh, the completion of all these times in the early 60s there the two papers in town the star news and all of the radio people TV was not as prevalent then as it is today, but uh, everybody was talking about the possibility of a basketball franchise coming to Indianapolis. Well, I was really hopped up about hearing this and the possibility of a future franchise coming and playing professional basketball in the city of Indianapolis. Therefore, uh, when Chuck Norman and uh, Bill Marble. Uh, Bill Marble worked for Chuck in uh, sports headliners, and uh, they represented many sports figures all over the country, including Earl McCullough and, and many of the Roger McCluskey and many of the race drivers. So when this all transpired, and we, a group of people, uh, the DeVoe brothers, uh, Dick Tinkham and a couple of bankers from Lafayette and uh, Dick, uh, Bill Bastion here in town uh, got together and hired Mike Storn as their general manager. And lo and behold, we were going to have an ABA franchise in the city of Indianapolis starting in 1967. Well, 1967 rolled around and Lo and behold, the papers put out a call-out for anyone interested in trying out for the Pacers should show up <laughs> at the State Fairgrounds Coliseum. That's great. You don't see that anymore. <laughs> well, we had 157 people show up to try out for the Pacers, including Jimmy, our good friend Jimmy Rail up in Kokomo yeah. of IU fame, Ron Bonham, and and many of the of the 
star Jimmy Dawson from Illinois and George Peebles from Iowa and gosh, we just had a host. And lo and behold, those first call-outs were handled by three pretty well-known people. Uh, Larry Staverman, of course, was, had been named the coach, but he uh, acquired uh, Bobby and Slick Leonard and Clyde Lavellet to help him out with the uh, tryouts. Well, lo and behold, we had them, and not only did we have 157 people show up for the tryouts, we had another three or four thousand people show up just to watch. Uh, wow! And it was it was three or four crowded days at the State Fairgrounds Coliseum that we we had this tryout, and they got it down so far and got a a team organized and. Larry named their five stars, which included Roger, which the first pacer that signed, and he was lived in Dayton at the time. Uh, Roger Brown, Freddie Lewis had been playing ball over in Cincinnati, and Jimmy Dawson had graduated from Illinois, and he was on there. George Peoples, Ron Koslicki, uh, Matt H. from Michigan State, uh, and some of those guys that uh, made the team. And lo and behold, our first game was at the Coliseum. And lo and behold, we had an overflow crowd. Standing room only. Standing people re- people stand- so excited about basketball, professional basketball being here. Everybody was excited about the basketball coming. And, and they were showing up. Uh, we didn't do very well to start the season. But uh, we we became a very mediocre team and was in the middle of the middle of the field with Louisville and some of the other Minnesota and some of the other Pittsburgh, New York and New Jersey and uh, Bill Marble called me and he says, Bill, he says, uh, I'm getting all this information from the league office. Well, George Mikan was then the commissioner of the new ABA and they had a league office in New York and he says, I'm getting all this information from from the league office, and they're wanting information about field goals and assists. Oh, gosh. And, well, <laughs> Bill Marvel didn't know which end of a basketball to hold up. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'd been a race fan all his life, and, and basketball was just another word to him. So he asked me to put together a, a group. He said it was going to need a group of people to keep the statistics, keep the running account of the – some of the, the what transpired in the game, and so I put this group together. It was an eight-man crew, correct? Eight-man to start with, yeah. And I was doing the typing. Okay. Believe me, back then we look at our computers today, but back then I was on a Remington Rand typewriter, <laughs> and I typed yeah. every play that happened. You put down the time first, in other words, like eight seventeen, Roger Brown. So it'd be like sentences. It wouldn't be like 35 pacers layout. It'd be statements. It would be just statements. It wouldn't be any, one room. There. We sure. only had three You'd, or four inches. In less than room, you don't have time. Yeah, like it I say. It could be four baskets by the time you get one done. It was so fast <laughs> that uh, he, I had we had to employ another person to write down the things so that we didn't didn't miss anything. So that that all happened, and... And Bill Bevan, who is now the official scorer and has been with the 
exception of two years with the Pacers, Bill Bevan has been the official scorer. Paul Foremsky was my first and only official timer until he passed away three years ago. Mm-hmm. And as everybody knows, his son uh, did the shot clock. So, And then Mike's daughter, uh, Sarah, became the third generation Foremsky. Uh, and she's now in uh, corporate sponsorships mm-hmm. and things with the Pacers. So she's a third generation person. I think that's pretty cool. With the yeah. Fremskis that uh, have been uh, been involved. The other course is Randy Fishman and his son Scott. Scott's now in charge of the Pacer stat crew and my and the stat crew over at the Indianapolis Colts and he's in charge of all those guys and uh, and keeps keeps them in line and of course they've done the Super Bowl uh, a couple of things they've got to do the the final fours the final fours the Big Ten championships so they've had a a real field day with how the sports scene in Indianapolis has expanded since 1967 Mm -hmm. starting out with a franchise that uh, had to pay for people from check to check and from week to week and didn't have any excess money to get any players. We were lucky and Mike Storn worked a deal to get Mel Daniels uh, in the second year uh, and named Bobby Slick Leonard our coach after a 7-9 and nine start with the, with the Pacers in the second year. And from there on, it's, it's history. Three championships with those guys, with Slick and and Mike Storn at the helm, and uh, just a story of success from then on. Well, from the State Fairgrounds Coliseum, the people first talked about building a dome to house a possible baseball or football or mm-hmm. something that required with our Indiana weather it was not a very good idea to take a chance on outside sports no. uh, here in the state so we first talked about a dome down by White River which we would have called the Kappa Dome I, <laughs> I still have some of the drawings and you some do? Of the, yes they do and I had the the people in uh, in Indianapolis well they had a their home offices were in Indianapolis. They had a plant in Shelbyville and one in Fort Wayne and one in Lafayette that built pre-stressed concrete beams. And these were going to be the solidifying thing in building a large capodome. Well, everybody thought that was a great idea, but the, when they started talking the dollars, why everybody kind of lost interest in something more in the line of Market Square Arena was uh, talked about, and that became fruition. And of course, Market Square Arena was an outstanding basketball arena where we named uh, you know, one of our championships from the ABA. And then, of course, we were taken in by the NBA and became an NBA member franchise. We did all of the high school boys and girls basketball, volleyball, did uh, a lot of the Big Ten stuff at Market Square Arena because it was 
a neutral site for all of the Big Ten teams, and it was centrally located between between the Big Ten schools, uh, still like it is uh, now, except for Rutgers and uh, Old Maryland. They're mm-hmm. kind of on the East Coast, but uh, uh, still within driving range of, of uh, Market Square Arena. And now, after 20-some years, everybody decided Market Square wasn't good enough, and so we imploded it. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, I watched that and almost cried. But because uh, there goes all of, the memories, right? There was a lot of memories in that building with with Larry Taylor and Eddie and Slim Summerland. Uh, all those guys that put that building together and made it operate in a very fashionable way, uh, and everybody liked Market Square Arena. But then they designed. A, Conseco Fieldhouse, and uh, we had a larger area and could be able to seat more people more comfortably. And it's all about suites too nowadays. Suites. Can you sell the suites? Oh, and, and, uh, and, and Banker's Life now is or Conseco Fieldhouse is now Banker's Life, and probably, if not the finest arena to watch basketball and hockey, if there ever got major league hockey here it'd be an ideal oh, I think, location yeah. a venue such as such as banker's life uh it, it's just a great venue i mean for any kind of sport that you might like let's go way back let's go back to the coliseum days the aba how how much did indianapolis embrace them in the first three four years did it take to winning a championship for for everyone to get behind them obviously the first year it's going to be sellouts people are curious about professional basketball here but how much did they embrace them? It got more popular every year. And with Slick at the helm, uh, <laughs> everybody, of course, they enjoyed Slick Leonard and his days at IU in their national championship. National championship, right? Oh, it's, uh, I heard that. <laughs> but we still get on Slick for missing that first free throw. Hey, he made the second, though. He made the second. He made that second one. <laughs> That's and he's a, he's the best. He is without a doubt the best clutch call coach down coming down to the end of the game of any coach we have ever had. Really? Or that Shut I've up. ever seen in the NBA, the ABA, the Big Ten, or any of them. When it come down to crunch time, Slick could set up a play, and it would work. Not once, not twice. But every time it seemed like he'd do it. And, of course, that uh, going all the way back to the Coliseum, why we had so many friends. And there's still two, I think there's two or three ushers at Banker's Life that would that go uh, all the way go, back. Or go back to the Coliseum. Larry, uh, Larry and David and, uh, oh, I can't, I can't remember all their names. Still, that's, a, that's amazing. Two of amazing. them and then you and Bill, right? Bill and uh, and Slick, uh, Slick being at the first call out, I gotta, we've got to include him with okay. us in starting out, and we're the only three who started out with the Pacers and are still there, and we're, well, Bill and Slick of course are coaching, approaching three thousand home games, yeah, uh, and that uh, that goes all the way back, back at the old Coliseum, Ernie East was at the uh, 
at the Paris door, and he he let all the freeloaders in, and uh, so we had crowds all the time. I mean, uh, even when I had to drive down the wrong side of 38th Street in a snowstorm and roads that were so slick you couldn't, but I drove to the Coliseum to be at a ball game when I doubt if there was a hundred people in the stands because yeah. they couldn't get there. You remember the cost of the first ticket? Oh no, I don't. I of course I being the freeloader that I am. Yeah, you didn't pay it, but I I'm wondering been, is was it five a nickel? Oh, was it twenty five oh, cents? Where I think what do the you most think you expensive put ticket back then was fifteen bucks, if I recall. Okay, We're certainly in the sixteen area, uh, Mr. Brown. Uh, uh, was in charge of the ticket sales back then. Sandy Wheatley was uh, Mike uh, Mike Storn's uh, girl Friday, and Sue Ross and some of the girls there. Uh, and there, Sue's still alive, and I think Sandy is married to an attorney here in town, and they're they're still alive. And Sue lives in Florida, and Kenny, her uh, her son, uh, I don't know where he is, but that's. People who I remember that started out with the Pacers, and mm-hmm. of course Gene Hemelgarn uh, came on two years after a couple of the guys had to move. But Dick Bustle, the first official scorer, his job took him to Atlanta, Georgia, and so he was out. So Bill Bevan took over as official scorer and has been ever since. Uh, Gene Hemelgarn took over for Joe Baker, who had to move to. Marion and Danny had lived in Anderson and drove every night to and from Anderson, but he moved to Marion and that was just a little bit farther than what they wanted to drive. But Gene became head of the stat crew officials and I moved up, took over a lot of the other responsibilities of running the game and and taking care of the fire people out there and they were great. <laughs> you had to handle them a the little fire, bit? Yeah, the fire guys were great people. They're, they got hell in the newspapers because they they were considered the bad guys. Sure. But uh, I don't know what happened there. Now, today, the media room seats probably uh, good for about 30. The rooms could, uh, in total, feature about 100 people in there. But back in the old days, what was that room like for you guys? This is a pretty funny story. Our first press room was a ladies' restroom. It had a stool, mm-hmm. it had a sink, <laughs> and that was it. So we tight were, quarters early on. It was tight quarters, and Dave Overpeck was with the star. Dick Mittman and Dick Denny were guys that covered for the news, and we had a chair and a table for them, <laughs> and that was it. Uh, we had a, Over on the other side of the room, we had to put a table and then we started using fax machines way back then, and it took the first fax machine we had took a minute. Then we got moved up to the drum kind, and we put it on a drum, and it would do it in 30 seconds. Oh, man. That's a well, huge upgrade. It was a huge upgrade. And now, yeah. of course, we don't use fax machines anymore. We got the Internet and everything, but we did have fax machines that did it in probably about 10 seconds. So, uh, but the the transition from the Fairgrounds Coliseum to downtown and all of the other 
sporting events which we've had come to Indianapolis, I believe has had something to do because uh, Mike Fox over at the uh, at, at the Lucas stadium, Oil, yeah, and uh, the guys at Bankers Live, Rick Fusen, they have had a lot of international, national and international events come to Indianapolis, and I think it's through the Sports Corporation, and of course, they've been a good friend of ours. Every time one of the people in the Sports Corp or Mike or somebody calls and wants my group to do stats or do something. Yeah, little events, uh, even Crossroads yeah. Classic. There's a one-day event. So our volunteer people uh, has been very noteworthy and I believe very helpful in all of the expansion of all the both amateur and professional sports that we presently have in the city of Indianapolis. I think one thing that's interesting is the relationships that, that you guys still have today with all your stats crew, the players, coaches like Leonard. I mean, there was a, there's times in the past where you just, you'd celebrate holidays together. You'd have weekly lunches. Share what, what those experiences were like and continue to be for you, for you guys, which, which I think is not like it is today where everybody's kind of off to themselves more. Probably the noteworthy one, which probably emanated all of this stuff, was Nancy Leonard decided to have a 40th birthday for Bill York. Well, Uh-oh. they collared me, handcuffed me, put me in a casket, <laughs> and then they I could feel them put me in a, a, a van— and they drove around, I imagine, for the better part of a, an hour. They had to go on to Lafayette or Lebanon or someplace. But uh, I was handcuffed and blindfolded all this time. Kicking and, and screaming? And in it, no, I was you no just, use doing that. You're a good I, sport. I was, in a, I was in a box, a casket box. Yeah. <laughs> and they're driving me around. There wasn't anybody in the back. They were, well, it was. Tom Cotton and oh Harden and Paul Harden and some of those guys that wouldn't they they were twice as big as I was. So they finally well we they got me and tied me to a tree mm. and I later found out it was in Leonard's front yard and everybody went by and whispered something to me. Well, when that was over everybody went by, Nancy was up on the roof. And she sprayed everybody, including me, with a hose. John Jewett said it's the best party he had ever been to. <laughs> and that started our friendships uh, from Sandy Knapp uh, and her tall lady costumes that we used to do. We used to do costumes at Halloween. And, and then New Year's Eve party was always at Ferimsky's. And the team, their family... Uh, the pacemates, the mayor, and the chief of police were all always invited to our New Year's Eve party. And you weren't dumb. You know how to, they you know how to all, control a situation. They all showed up. Well, thank heavens one night, Mel and Freddie and Billy Keller and, uh, I don't know, Boozy and Roger and all were out in Fremsky's backyard, and it was cold, and they had to 
gun of some kind, and they were shooting up in the air, and the limbs are falling out of the trees and everything else, and the shooting and everything. Well, all of a sudden, we hear the siren. Uh-oh. And lo and behold, here come the, the police. They drive up into our driveway and come in. Well, naturally, the chief of police was there, and the mayor was there, so they handled that for us. Situation under control. Uh, the boys had to put away their guns, but other than that. Like I said, you knew exactly what you were doing with that guest list. Yeah, and uh, but those were every year. Um, during the summertime, Clark Kellogg and Herb and Johnny Barnhill and all the Pacers who had families, they came out to the Yorks on July 4th. There were probably uh, dozens of the kids that learned how to swim in my pool. And uh, lo and behold, Clark Kellogg had a couple of his boys play college ball, and his daughter played on Georgia Tech's uh, All-American uh, volleyball team. And uh, so that... Uh, that made it all complete. We just It was one big family, and we missed that anymore when we moved to, uh, moved to downtown Indianapolis. But basically, it, uh, it's still a Pacer family, but it's not operated like it used to when we were starting out. Today, you're still in nearly every home Pacer game, and, and everybody knows exactly who you are. You have your routine, I think, where you walk through and talk with everyone. What What's game day like for you? David Benner, uh, my boss at the Pacers, says, Bill, you've been since the initial party. He says, you do what you want to do. <laughs> there you uh, go. So that, what I like to do is talk to everybody, make sure everybody's taken care of, and that's been what I've tried to do all my life. Yeah, and you do a great job at it. How would you say has the handling of media and, and statistics and everything changed, I mean, so, so much over the last 30, 40 years? What's, what's well, been the biggest the, change for you, would you the say? Thing, uh, changing from the typewriter to the computer. Simplifying I mean, things. It yeah. has simplified. And instead of eight people that need to do the stats now, we have three, possibility of a fourth on busy busy games and stuff like that. The other thing that I don't totally understand is uh, I thought we were getting away from paper statistics. Oh, they keep printing those. But, well, everybody's got the Internet at their excess on their computer, but yet everybody, both the Colts and the Pacers, they continue doing up game notes, and those game notes get to be a half an inch thick, and I'm sure that 99% of the people don't use them. Or at least don't get all the way through them. You they, get for the first three or four pages. Well, the one that gets me, honestly, Bill, is uh, the, the in-between timeouts or the end of quarters. I love the post-game box score, but I don't need one at, at the end of each quarter. And, I, and it's great thick stock of paper. I just wonder about that. And I, can, and I have it pulled up already on my computer. Well, I, that, that's what I, I really don't understand, but I'm sure they'll get to the bottom of it one of these days. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, I, naming the naming the media center after me, and, and that I, was pretty cool. I got a nice uh, send off uh, last the uh, Titans coach or game at the stadium was my last Colt game. I've been there 
32 years with the Colts. Uh, I helped unload the Mayflower vans out on Literally. East yeah. Kessler uh, when I, Bob Eller and Bob Walters set up their media center there at uh, the school and have been with them ever since. Pete was very nice, gave me a nice, you got a nice legitimate uh, jersey with 32 years on it. And Andrew Luck gave me an autographed football with 32 great years on it. And we went uh, we went from there. He said he's going to put my picture up on the wall, but I'm not. As they should. I'm not going to wait for that to happen. Maybe but, that, uh, that, is that not already the Bill York Media no, press box no, or anything? No, that no. It's so stretched out. It's, <laughs> we'd have to name it the 500 mile race. <laughs> poor girls have to run all the way from south to north to do pass out statistics and, and everything well billy you're involved with indianapolis motor speedway the pacers colts is it is it easy to pick one that that you you pushed for more enjoyed the most maybe because of the people or the month-long event or the just the individuals or are they all kind of their own individual beasts that you enjoy independently well they're all independent but of course the pacers were my favorite and always have been because I'd played basketball. I had a little bit of knowledge of what happens in basketball, and so that become my my main thing. And it, our whole family and many of our families of all the stat crew revolved around what the Pacers yeah. did. All it's your years. second family, essentially. It's, well, it's our first family, really. <laughs> it uh, we're all Pacer diehards and. Uh, will remain that way no matter what happens. Yeah. When you look back with Nancy and Slick Leonard, I'm one that thinks I think there should be a statue in front of Banker's Life Fieldhouse for all they've done from the very beginning till today to the Pacers Telethon, which there's going to be a 30 for 30 documentary coming out soon. Just what kind of impact have you seen through the years that those two have had together? It's not just Slick. It's Nancy as well. Oh, well, Nancy's a driving force, and uh, uh, Slick just shows up. <laughs> Uh, but uh, Nancy and, of course, Sandy Knapp and her put together a a, a program that, that worked for the Pacers, and uh, I'm sure that that was probably the root of why we got into the NBA and are, are still a viable franchise in the NBA mm-hmm. stronghold, really. What has been the most rewarding part of just being the, the Pacers? Oh, knowing guys like and getting along with you know, Roger and all the kids and Donnie Walsh. Donnie Walsh. Yeah, we haven't even mentioned him. Uh, it's just been a stoner, stone, cornerstone of solidity for the Pacers, Donnie Walsh. And, of course, when he brought Larry in to basically take his place, and, of course, the Simons, uh, what a group. And Cindy Simon will take over everything here one of these days, and she is just a she is as organized as any person I've ever known, and uh, she'll she'll get things organized. And Herb will Herb will let her do it, I'm sure, because uh, she did she gets things done. 
My thanks again to Bill York for making time for me to record this podcast and sitting down with me. Truly enjoyed it, and it was one of those conversations that I knew when I had this podcast, it was one of those conversations that I wanted to share for others to be informed about. Well, shout-outs for this week go to several players, mostly the young guys. Shout-out to Shane Winnington and Rakeem Christmas, who got called up from the D-League from the Pacers this past week, got some playing time, got some practice time. The Pacers see what they are doing up in Fort Wayne. They see the efforts they're putting in, the results on the court, and this was a little bit of a reward and also an opportunity for them to get back with the team to understand what's new, what's different, what they have maybe changed, and also just see the guys again. That was cool to see them back in the locker room. Shane Winnington still with the Pacers on this road trip because of a Jan Mahimi injury. Same goes for former Pacer Orlando Johnson. He signed a 10-day contract with the Phoenix Suns. He was one of those players that I think was a huge asset in the locker room, and we certainly enjoyed him with the media. And then a shout-out to Miles Turner. This rookie just continues to impress on and off the court. He's earned a starting role and looks better with each game. He's tremendous with the media. And this past week, I truly appreciate him being honest with us, accepting blame for a late-game issue. That's the type of guy I want in my locker room. That's the type of guy I want in my organization. And off the court, Turner is already impacting lives in the community of Indianapolis. He recently held a WARM event, which stands for We All Really Matter. Fans could make a donation and then receive a pre-made bag of items, which then they could give to someone in need. The bag included items like gloves, socks, deodorant, a toothbrush, a bottle of water, etc. Those are the essentials, right? Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Vigilant Sports Pacers podcast. Subscribe today on iTunes and on Stitcher. Leave us a review if you haven't already, and I'll talk to you again next week.